Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello again, my friends. This is Tim Banal with BanalofAmerica.com's original audio series, Banal of America Audio, Season 1. This week, we continue with the Greg Bishop interview, Part 2 of 2. A little bit of in-house notes before we do the bio and rock out on the interview, and that is that we are hard at work on a streaming audio system, and we hope to have it to banalofamerica.com by next weekend, uh, the 29th of October. So hopefully, if you're listening to this, uh, check out banalofamerica.com, and soon you will be able just to listen and not have to download, and and we'll add a whole new dimension to Banal of America Audio Season 1 as we enter the second half of this monumental audio series. And now, a little bit about Greg Bishop before we rock out on the interview. He is the editor and publisher of The Excluded Middle. I believe he also writes some of the articles for it. It is an esoteric journal. And also, he is the host of Radio Mysterioso, and that is an online esoteric radio show. And, of course, he's the author of Project Beta, the story of Paul Benowitz, national security, and the creation of a modern UFO myth. That is uh, pretty much what we're talking about this week here at Banal of America Audio. And you can also check out Greg Bishop's website at www.excludedmiddle.com. That's E-X-C-L-U-D-E-D. M-I-D-D-L-E dot com. This entire portion was recorded on August 24th, 2005. Let's take it away. Greg Bishop, part two of two on Banal of America Audio, season one. All right, so Bill Moore, um, after he gave the big speech and the revelation at the UFO convention, uh, do you think ufology learned anything from his experience? They did, but it took about a decade to do it. I think. And, what, for the first decade they were just mad and, and, and jealous? Yeah, the, the, uh, yeah, it, I think, yeah, jealousy is one that is put in there, too. I mean, I hate to bring up that word, but, yeah, I, I think they were jealous. I mean, the, 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 um, the, the people that were hovering around that information were suddenly told that it was all complete crap and was made up. Now, that's what they were basing their worldview on, so it was a little tough to take. And other people, and another, you know, in the second echelon was, we trusted this guy, and now he tells us that he was reporting it on us to the government. So they didn't want to have anything to do with him. And then, you know, kind of the rank and file, they, you know, they they went along with the first two, the, the first two uh, levels. You know, either, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, you can't trust anything he says because he's just told us everything that happened, which I thought was kind of weird. If he's telling you what happened and admitting to it, does that mean he's lying all the time? (laughs) Was he lying to them about lying to them? I, you know, it confused a lot of people, but um, this is where that that, um, that excluded middle, the the two sides of the issue thing comes along. You know, if you can listen to somebody and not have this filter on where you're immediately throwing out something and not listening to it because you don't like it, and then accepting the other things that seem to agree with your prejudices, you're, you're never going to get anywhere. And um, I think um, people in ufology, one, have had time to be circumspect about what happened, and two, a lot of younger people are coming up that, um, yeah, because I was, what, I was like 20, 
I was 25 when that happened. And um, there's a lot of people coming up now that weren't around then or weren't involved, and they've got a different mindset about what's going on and a different way of looking at it. So they're they're able to say, you know, look at what he did and uh, what can we learn from it, which is what he was asking, Bill was asking people to do in the first place. And um, the, that, like, next wave of people, like, you know, like you and Nick Redfern and, and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of other people. Uh, Greenwald. Yeah, Greenwald. Uh, Greenwald, I tend to think, is kind of a black and white type of person, but I don't know him too well. I just meant he's part of a young generation. Of yeah, exactly. But and, um, for the most part, those, those, those kind of people, they don't have the prejudices that the generation before it had. I mean, it happens in anything. Uh, any, any, in any field, and they're trying to look at new ways to look at things, and one of those involves listening to somebody that everybody thought was a pariah before and seeing what they can get out of it. So was he blackballed from ufology pretty much, or was it sort of... Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Wow. Nobody wanted to talk to him for a long time. In fact, up to when he just stopped, I think most people just didn't want to deal with him, and he did not make an effort to go out and communicate with people because... He figured if somebody had something to say, they'd come to him, which is what happened. Now, he was, I would assume he was pretty tight with Stan Friedman because uh, they wrote the first book and they were involved in the MJ-12 uh, documents. Did he ever give any indication of what Friedman's reaction to this whole thing was? Um, Friedman sort of knew what was going on because they were close enough that he knew that there was, he was getting inside information. I don't know if he knew he was trading it for, you know, reports on people, but... Um, you know, Bill didn't sit there and type up reports and say so-and-so went to his house and then he met with his wife and, you know, and then he, then he cheated on her and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What, what happened was they would just ask him, you know, so-and-so over at MUFON, um, you talked to them recently, did they know anything about this? Um, do they know anything about what? Uh, uh, the Nellis Range. It seems like they're interested in it. What did they say about it? And he'd say, well, they said this and this and this and this. And as long as there was nothing in there that looked dangerous, they'd just say, okay, fine. Um, I'm sure these people have files on them, and uh, I have a file on me, and you do, and Bill does. And But, you know, so what? Um, but that, that, was, that was their agreement. And, and Stan, I'm sure, does too. And Stan Friedman, he, they, he and Bill got in a, some sort of an argument later over something I can't even remember. And... After that, they, um, they they stopped talking. They don't hate each other or anything. They just, you know, they stopped working together. And, and Stan's still going out and Bill isn't, which is another reason why they're just not really in communication. And what about the other guy that, that is... He's Jamie Chandra? Yeah, he's almost a trivia question and answer at this point. He's really yeah. disappeared from the field. What's... What? He's, I love that story. You know, um, in 99, I think, I started talking to him extensively. I guess Bill, like, introduced me or something. We started talking on the phone. And, like, once every two or three months we'd call up and I'd say, you know, what about this or what have you found out or, you know. And we'd just talk about various subjects. I don't think I ever met him face-to-face -face but one time. Less of the time was just phone contacts. And I said, would you like to do an interview for the magazine? Because at that point I was thinking I'd put out another issue. And I, if he had talked to me, I probably would have. Uh, he said, yeah, sure, you know, this is in November, October. He said, I'm going to go to New York, and I'll be back in December, and um, we'll do it then. I said, okay, and I never heard from him again. And I called his house, and his number was changed. And it was changed very quickly. I called his house, and there was a message on the machine, 
there's a machine with some woman's voice saying, um, this is whatever number. If you're calling for somebody named Jamie or Shandera or Shandere, I don't know who he is or where he went. Wow. Um, they didn't have a forwarding number or anything. They just reassigned the number to some woman very quickly, within like a month. And I never heard what happened to him. Although recently, um, I found out he still lives in L.A., and he just dropped out of the UFO field. The funny thing was, the last thing he told me before he disappeared was, I, I, I don't know how we got on the subject, um, well, very easily, but he, he said, I know there's an alien presence here, and I know the government knows about it. So I said, well, how, how can you be so sure, Jamie? I mean, he said, I was shown something that, that, uh, that made me believe that. And so I'm thinking, is he telling me this to make me think he thinks that, or does he actually believe it? I said, well, what was it? And he said, I can't tell you. <laughs> Part of the agreement was that I don't talk about what it was. He said, however, if you guess what it is, I'll tell you that you're right. <laughs> so for, you know, okay, that was the last thing we were talking about. So over the next couple of months, that subject, I, I just, you know, I said, did you see a craft? Did you shake hands with an alien? You know, obviously if you saw a film, it could have been faked. You know, was it some, uh, it, was it a document? It's no, 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 no. And finally, I said, Jamie, I've, I think I've gone through everything. You're asking me for something that sounds like a, a religious belief. He goes, no, I was shown something. It was real. And I was never able to guess it. And then he disappeared. And you haven't talked to him since? Nope. Although I, knew, I know he lives in L.A., and I have a, a strong suspicion that he really doesn't want to talk to anybody about it. Kind of like Al Bender, who disappeared years ago after the Men in Black thing. He still lives in L.A. I believe he may still be alive. He's probably in his 70s. But if you even mention UFOs to the guy, he'll throw you out of the house, I've heard. Wow. But Jamie, I, I think he just, uh, what I think is he was shown this thing and told, and he had been involved with the government back to the 60s as, as kind of a contract worker on various things. Like uh, the first thing he did was a, some kind of audio tape analysis. Of a, of a soldier in a court-martial case to try and determine whether his voice was faked on the phone or something. And he, he actually testified for the government in that case as, a, you know, as an expert witness. And Bill told me this because he said one time they were at a meeting and, and somebody from the CIA thing, I said, turned to Bill and said, uh, you're new, I haven't seen you before, but you, and he turned to Jamie and pointed to him, we've known about you since the 1960s quite a long time, and Bill kind of said, what, who, what? <laughs> he had no idea. He just thought he was a, new, you know, a TV producer that he'd met. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, so they, I didn't emphasize it in the book because there's just too many stories, but him and, him and Bill worked quite closely together on a lot of this stuff, and they knew the same people and talked to the same people. And, in fact, they're, Bill and Jamie are the, were the ones that came up with that aviary thing so they could talk about all these contacts they had without having to worry about revealing their identities. Hawk and Falcon and, and Sparrow and, you know, all these people. All right, well, uh, that actually is a question here. I'm going to jump right to that one then. Um, the aviary, now, as soon as I read that part in the book, I immediately flashed to the, uh, the Bill Cooper book because he has a section on uh, where he dubs a group uh, the aviary, and, but in his version, uh, they're all ufologists. I think some of them were ufologists. Not all of them, but a couple. And the, what I was going to ask is, uh, well, he, he pretty much said the aviary was all, all ufologists. 
And he was so people also believed the protocols of the elders of Zion and the thought that the, uh, the the driver in the Kennedy assassination was the one that shot Kennedy. <laughs> okay, well that's the, yeah. See, I was going to ask you about Bill Cooper in general, so let's talk about him because he's gone now. He kind of uh, he passed away before the internet boom, and he sort of got missed out on this big explosion of information. Now he's sort of another guy who's sort of fallen into the cracks that you don't even hear about much anymore. You probably know more than I do about him, so give me a little information about uh, Bill Cooper. Well, not much more, but uh, sometime in the... Actually, in Linda Howe's book, it reminded me in, in uh, her first book on the cattle mutilation thing, Strange Harvest, she worked with Bill Cooper pretty closely, and he said that he'd seen Somehow he remembered verbatim some some document that he had seen while he was working for, uh, oh, God, what was it, for the Coast Guard or for the Navy? Yeah, it was for the Navy. He said he had seen some document that uh, had to do with UFOs. It was kind of like the Bob Dean scenario. Yeah. And uh, somehow, I don't know how, he remembered every word of it verbatim and, and told it to her. And, she, and they, they, you know, they typed it up to make it look all official like it was a real document, even though they didn't claim that it was. Um and published it in her book. Um, the, the th and uh, like I said, like a lot of these other people, that's fine, but there's no way to prove any of it. And the funny thing was, a lot of it um, was based on things that had come out after that that looked like they were actually just lifted from other documents that had been released. So, you know, in, in his mind, that was because, you know, that made it real. It means that, you know, it, there was cross-reference. But to me, it's just the stuff that he'd read and dumped in there consciously or not. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't have a really high opinion of Bill Cooper. He's just one of those people that would believe everything, as in Benowitz's case, but he was a lot more shrill. He would believe everything that, that, that squared up with what he thought was going on and, and discount everything that didn't. Even if it was proven, and you know most of the population believed it, and any reasonable person would, he 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 just wouldn't do it. So I, it, it's you know, you're talking to somebody that just has a delusional idea about what's going on, and then basing you know an entire book and his entire life on on this illusory thing. And there there I'm, there were certainly parts of it that were real. There was a protocols of the elders of Zion, but. Most people think it was uh, propaganda to make people think that there were a bunch of Jewish bankers taking over the world and planning this in the what, late 19th century. But he believed it was actually real. The unfortunate thing is a lot of anti-Semitic people and Nazis and everybody else believe this too. It doesn't make it wrong, but um, it hasn't been proved to be anything else but what I, what I, what I think it is, which was just a, uh, you know, a provocational thing put out by a bunch of people who are anti-Jewish. Not that I'm Jewish or anything, but... It doesn't, you know, if something doesn't square up from more than one dimension, it's kind of hard to support it. And Bill Cooper, anything, anything from his dimension that made sense to him was true. Well, from what I, uh, when I read the book, I, his book, I, I kind of thought he must have, if I was going to uh, surmise. I must say I never read the book, so I might All right. I went, it yeah, it's a, it's a lot of, like, short. Uh, essay type things and, and, and document type things like the protocols of the Elders of Zion is like a whole chapter in it. Mm -hmm. So, and then there's a chapter where uh, he talks about ufology and really goes after the people in ufology and that's where he brings up the aviary and lists about eight people, I want to say, eight, name, eight names in ufology that everybody pretty much knows and says they're, they're the aviary and they're with the government and it was really 
That was, uh, it was no, but the aviary was something Bill and Jamie made up. <laughs> it was never any official group. Yeah, see, that's that's what I was going to, that's like sort of the question was, because um, he, he seemed to like take uh, an extreme point of view and then it seemed. He did that in everything. It seemed that at some point he turned on ufology where he stopped trusting like everybody in the field. Well, it sounds like a classic paranoid thing where you suddenly think everybody's after you. And and they were. They just didn't want to listen to him because it was so annoying. And he so he read it as, oh, they all hate me and they've turned against me. And so the the, the aviary was, was Bill Moore and, and uh, Chandair. That, that was their way of uh, talking about the people. Yeah, they just heard it, they working as far as I've been able to determine, and, you know, I've never heard anything different except from people that come up with stuff that makes no sense whatsoever to me, was that they, they, they were using these bird names because they wanted to be able to talk about, you know, Richard Doty and this Falcon character and uh, Robert Collins and um, I think Ernie Kellistrauss was one of them who's in that book, uh, Exempt from Disclosure. Um, Hal Putoff was one of them, I believe. These are all these people that were in this in this uh, group that was trying to find either putting out disinformation or trying to find out what the disinformation was from whatever angle they could come at it. Yeah, so people who were hip to what was going on. Yeah, yeah, just uh, their networks, terms. people who were communicating across, you know, privately by phone and mail and all this at the time. And they could say, well, you know, Owl says this, but Falcon says this. And, you know, if somebody was yeah. listening in on them, they wouldn't know what the hell they were talking about. Now, what about the guy who's always, who's kind of lumped in with Bill Cooper in the book, John Lear? He sort of reemerged in the last two years or so. Um, what was the story with him back in the day, back during this whole saga? Because at some point he seems to have disappeared off the UFO radar, and now he's back. Well, because he, there was other things he needed to do where he got tired of it. Um, and so I saw John Lear speak a few times. He was a guy that went up there with a bunch of guards around him. Yeah, yeah. He had, like, these big burly security guards stand around him during his lectures to make it look like he was saying stuff that was going to be very dangerous and he was going to get, you know, assassinated for it. Now, and he was standing, like, five feet above them, which gave anybody a clear shot, which just seemed kind of silly. <laughs> but anyway... Um, I think he was one of the first people that came out and talked to Paul Benowitz about what, what he was finding out, what he, what he thought was going on. And actually, Paul became annoyed with him because he, uh, Lear wanted to hear all the most lurid stuff, but um, he didn't give him anything back. And he said, I'm going to go out and talk about this, and, you know, and I, I think that's incredible. And... And uh, I think at one point Lear lied to him or something. Anyway, he got Paul mad at him and he stopped talking to him. Um, but he was one of the first people to, to listen to Paul Benowitz and take his information and, and try to start doing something with it, um, making announcements about it. Because uh, Benowitz wasn't really a, he wasn't a, a publicity hound. He just, he was trying to find out what was going on and see if he could do something about it personally. Um, he didn't care about, you know, going on a lecture circuit or, or you know, having movies made about him or anything like that. Lear, on the other hand, I think was very interested in that kind of thing, whether he admitted it to himself or not. And um, I think he developed some contacts with some of the same people that Benowitz was talking to, and they kept telling him the same story. So he would spread these stories in, 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 uh, through, through the UFO community and confuse, confuse and discredit people. And... Uh, 
he did that for a while, and then kind of, you know, after the novelty of what he was saying faded off and people were tired of hearing it, he stopped. Um, he didn't have the best story, you know. He didn't have the story to top the other stories anymore. The funny thing is, is I saw him last year, or two years ago at the, at the um, crash retrieval conference that Bob and Ryan Wood put on. I was speaking at it. He walked in, and everybody immediately crowded around him, and... Um, he was all smiles and shaking hands and all that. And I said, hey, you know what, I just, I, you're in the book I'm writing. It's going to come out. And he, he said, really? I said, I don't know if it's a very flattering picture. I'm sorry to say. And he said, that's okay. I'd love to see it. <laughs> I said, okay, well, this seems fair, but I haven't heard anything from him since then. Yeah, he, uh, I never even, I just got into this like the last three years or so. I never heard of him until um, he showed up on the Arbell show. Uh, about two years ago, November 2003. Did he say anything new? Yeah, he had a... I guess he would have, otherwise he wouldn't come on. Yeah, he was um, all about how there should be no disclosure because the people couldn't handle it and talked a lot. Oh, yeah, that sounds typical. He talked, he talked about a lot of the stuff from... Um, Except for him because he can handle it. Yeah, that's kind of what he said. He, he got out of ufology because he couldn't do it because he was a pilot. And then um, this is like really what I can remember from the top of my head. And um, he gave this thing called the Lear test. Did you ever hear about that? No. Where he gave like a quasi briefing to Bell, and it was long, maybe 15 minutes long. And then he sort of was like, "So what do you do? Do you disclose it or not?" Under the like, it was under the the idea that the government brings you in and gives you this briefing, which he theoretically like gave to Bell, and then asked Bell what he would if he would disclose or not. And it was this really over the top briefing that was really negative and and just uh you 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 know just extreme feelings or or just awful type thing mm -hmm. and they've been here forever and they created religion and all this stuff and and um and then of course Bell who knows maybe they did yeah you know but it was other stuff too the, the underground bases I, yeah. it was it was all you can find it if you do a a, a web search for Lear test probably um yeah. And, and anyway, so Bell said no, and then it sort of became like a funny little Bell standard whenever he'd have uh, UFO guests on. He'd play the leader test, and they'd talk about it for a good half hour at least. Well, it's a good gimmick. That's why he came on. I think so. It was Yeah, because he was hyping it for a good hour before he did it, and then, then he did it. And then, then, he, then I, I always kind of found it funny that at the end of the interview, he said he was going to fade back into obscurity, and Bell said, is this the last time we'll speak with you, and he said, yeah, this is the last time, and then he was on again back. six months. What? Six months later, he came back on the show. Yeah, exactly. So, but he, I didn't know about that. Immediately, I said, oh, he'll be back. Oh, yeah, so I, I kind of laughed about that, because at that point, I'm like, well, if he said that, I'm already, you know. Well, Bell said he was quitting radio, too, and he came back. Okay, the next, uh, let's see here, how riddled with disinformation and uh, disinfo dis agents and stuff is ufology today, do you think? Mm, not nearly as much as it used to be, but probably still some. You think that's because the Cold War ended and, and, and... Yeah, I think that's the main reason. I think people are more interested, the government's more interested in um, Middle Eastern terrorists now than they are in people hanging around military bases and taking it back to Russia. Um, I don't think that, uh, as far as I know, I don't think that uh, Middle Eastern terrorists operate that way. They just come in and bomb things. They don't really need to know about what kind of planes and rockets we're using. Well, do you think uh, do you think there's people in in the field that are just there to throw off the the rest of the field at the behest of the government? 
I don't think they're, I, you know what, I, I, I was about to say I don't think there ever was, but the thing is that the, 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 the people were in there to throw off people at the behest of the government, but they didn't know they were doing it, which is the best kind. So do you think that's going on? I'm not so sure. I, I think it's a lot, if it's going on at all, it's, it's, it's very minor now. Oh, really? I mean, that's just my feeling. I mean, I can't explain to you, except for what I just said, why that is. Yeah. But um, there's still people around that that were active in that at the time, and they're still ufologists, and they're they're still doing things. But I don't know if because if, uh, you know there hasn't been too much. You know, there's not a big thing about underground bases right now. All the exciting stuff that's going on happens to you know everybody hears about stuff and. Luckily and, and, and refreshingly, it's coming from Mexico, South America, other areas of the, of the world. All the most, you know, the most sensationalistic stuff now. And yeah. very interesting stuff. I think that was, a, there was kind of a clarion call or whatever, dinner bell. Not really a dinner bell, but <laughs> the, 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 kind of the announcement that the, all this stuff was going on in Mexico City about 10 years ago and is still going on. Um, signaled a, uh, a shift to, uh, of whatever the phenomenon is to some other area. And since the United States can't really latch, nothing, you know, none of the military or intelligence people here can latch on to any of that stuff, they just generally leave it alone. I mean, I, I can't think of anything really spectacular that's come out in the last 10 or 12 years in the United States, well, maybe, so say the last five years in the United States, that would be something that could be used as a hook, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Paul Benowitz was very convenient, and the fact that a lot of other people picked that up was was very convenient as well, because the people that cluster around that might not be actual, real, patriotic American citizens. Now, uh, actually, I want to kind of scroll back to a sort of a Bill Moore question, but do you think that as a result of what he did and how he came out, uh, people are more cautious in ufology about uh, everything, or at least the serious researchers are? They were right after he said it, even though they wouldn't admit it. Because I didn't want to admit that he had said something that you know that that would guide their thinking. I, I think it's I I think he probably single-handedly made everybody a lot more careful, even if they hated him. They were a lot more careful about where stuff came from and what they did with it, with the exception of a few people like Lear and and Bill Cooper and, but you know rank and file most people were just a little bit more careful about who they were talking to and what they believed. I, I went through the same thing. I had some guy come to me from who said he was from naval intelligence and told me all kinds of scary things. Really? I was totally paranoid for about a year. I thought people were, you know, watching my house and, you know, calling, you know, tapping my phone and constantly. Well, when, tell me a little bit about this because that's, that's interesting if you, if you want to, if you can. Yeah, sure. Um, from naval intelligence, how did they contact you? Uh, through a friend of mine who they, he had like gathered this group of people like kind of not very famous U people that were interested in UFOs in the Southern California area. Um, my friend Richard had known him and then there was a few other people. Melinda Leslie knew him pretty well. Oh, I know Melinda. Yeah. Um, if you ask her about Mike, um, what was his name? I can't remember his last name, but ask her if she remembers Mike, she'll tell you. Okay. Um, he, he started meeting with us and calling me and, um, and, and leaking things to me to put in the magazine, which I did a couple of times. Um, and 
basically telling you know the first thing he told me was I've read your stuff and I think it's good. It sounds exactly like what happened to Bill. Yeah. I said, oh, yeah? I said, how'd you get a hold of it all? And he said, you've written about UFOs, right? Yeah. And he said, well, there's a file. I can just pull it up and look at it all. Huh. Everything you've written. I was like, you know, and at that time, I was like, you know, it, one for one thing, it's kind of flattering. And for two, it's like paranoia-inducing. There's two-pronged attack. Yeah. You know, um, so it's pumping your ego in a positive and negative way at the same time. So then, of course, he started, he gave me these huge, um, things that he'd written or said he'd written, um, I still have them too, um, about UFOs, what the government did with them, um, uh, military industrial complex, what they were doing, um, what Area 51 was about, um, the history of mind control, uh, all kinds of stuff in this huge mix. And actually in the first installment he gave me, he actually used the term excluded middle. Really? Basically, as probably a little thing out to me saying, you know, little props out to me saying, okay. He used it in another, you know, he kind of used it in a, in a, in a slightly different context, but the same, same idea about, um, you know, kind of stepping back and looking at the positive and negative aspects of something, the things you don't agree with and things you do agree with at the same time to see what can happen. Um, very slowly wove me into his web and then started telling me really scary things about uh, how, you know, m- how m- my mind could be controlled without knowing it and how cellular towers are being used as, as uh, you know, just really insane things. And, of course, you know, this information, he would tell me a few things. One, first he made me feel good, then he would tell me things I knew about already, and he'd show me documents that actually proved it, and then he'd start going into speculation because he already had me in that net. Yeah of believing what he said. And, you know, I was like, well, I'm getting information from the inside. I never went out and stood out and said, I've been told this, and you're being watched, and your cellular towers are controlling your brain and all this. I, because I, I, you know, in one part of my, I mean, I was just like, I can't go out and say this. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, there's no way for me to prove it. But I, his point was to try and get me, and I, I still can't figure out why the hell he was talking to me. I, I, I really don't. And then we find out later he probably wasn't really in naval intelligence, yet he knew things he shouldn't know. So he had a, he was, he knew somebody somewhere that knew what was going on. This, this story gets far deeper than I want to get to, into it with on, on, on your show. Okay, yeah, that's cool. All right, um, we'll move on to a, a question here. Well, what's been the reaction from ufology to the book um, since since it came out, I'm sure, because like I said in the introduction, it, I think it really smashed the fourth wall of ufology in some aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what do you think the fourth wall of ufology is or was before that? Um, I think it was just sort of like, you, you see a lot of books come out that are UFO books, mm-hmm. but you don't see too many that are actually ufology books, that are books on ufology. Yeah, yeah. Do you follow me? It's sort of like uh, it was an exactly. examination. There's very little actual uh, lights-in-the-sky discussion in the book. It's more uh, about the human drama. Yeah, well, that's the way I wanted to write it because I didn't want to write it for UFO people. I wanted to write it for a general audience that had no idea what was going on, so I had to kind of explain things that you and I and people we know take for granted. It's like, okay, I can skip these ten pages. But for somebody who doesn't know anything about it, they, 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 they have to know these things. And, I, you know, I don't think I did it in the best way because I'm too far into the too far into it to put myself outside of it so much that, you know, from somebody who doesn't know anything about it to understand. 
and also it's the first book I've written completely on my own. So, um, but uh, the, the reaction from from ufology has been, from what I've heard, and I don't get, I haven't gotten too many letters or emails from people, but it's the only negative thing I've heard was that review on Amazon. Um, and, you know, privately with people at, like, a couple of conventions. I don't usually go to conventions anymore unless, like, there's a bunch of my friends there or I'm speaking uh, and I have the time. But um, I, I told you about that one guy came up to me and said, uh, I liked your book, but you know what? There is a, there is a base at Delphi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, well, I, how do you know? And, and we went into it, which I, we've already described. But... Um, in general, and even from people like Paul Davids, who is who is a basically a hardcore believer, he's the guy that produced uh, the Roswell Showtime thing. That's what he's famous for. Yep, yep. With Kyle McLaughlin, um, he um, the first time I gave him a cop, I gave him a copy of the manuscript to read before it was published, and he he, he said the first thing he said was, "People are going to think you're trying to be Phil Class here. You don't, you, you're not, you know, you don't." Uh, you don't emphasize the uh, the mysterious aspects of this and how it's like, well, that's because what I found wasn't that mysterious. I mean, there are mysterious aspects of it that I discuss in the book and, and, and acknowledge, but there's also a lot of things that people thought were mysterious up to this point that I think I found that the background behind them, you know, that no, there's not a base there, and the reason everybody thought there was a base there was because what I talked about in the book. Yeah. And, and like I, well, like we were talking about ufology and younger people coming up and time for Bill's uh, announcement to sink in, people are a lot more circumspect about it, and um, they read the book for the enjoyment of something that they didn't know anything about before, or know, knew little about, or, you know, not, not as much as, as I've been, I was able to find out by talking to these people. So, it, it you know, it, I thought it'd be a lot more negative than it was, and so I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I wasn't sure how how they'd take to it because it, it, you're a little rough on ufology, but you know you're only telling it like it is and how it went down. Yeah, well, I'm rough on it because I I kind of feel the same way Bill does, especially when I write the book and then somebody comes up to me with absolutely no no reason whatsoever to believe something except that somebody told him. Yeah. One person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's like, well, Greg, you did that too. I'm like, no, I I checked three or four different people. Sometimes only two, but at least somebody was inside and somebody was outside to find out if there were, you know, common points of of uh, history between the, the accounts that I had, and check magazines, newspapers, um, you know, uh, old issues of UFO magazines, Fortean Times, all these things um, to try to substantiate what I was told. And a lot of people in ufology will not do that, and I, I think there's a, you know, it. It's not just ufology. I mean, a lot of people are like this. That they've got their beliefs, and no matter how much, no matter how much you show them that that they should probably change their beliefs on something, that they're not going to do it because they have to say, "Oh, wow, I guess I was wrong about that." And no, not many people at all like to say, "Oh, wow, I guess I was wrong about that," because it means that they were wrong. It's like I don't know why that's such a horrible thing. Yeah, people have a hard time. Especially with something as silly as UFOs. <laughs> Um, all right, now, as much as you want to talk about it, uh, the coast-to-coast -coast, uh, Art Bell episode with Jody, that was probably, that, that was almost as talked about as the book. Uh, that's kind of how I heard about the book. I didn't hear much about it. I didn't hear much reaction. Oh, it was a firestorm 
uh, when it first aired. Really, where? Uh, on the message boards and in emails. I got quite. A I only heard. Of I only got a little bit of it. Oh, I, that's why when I found your site, I was like, oh, somebody actually listened to it and said something. Oh yeah, I wrote the article really to uh, to uh, to respond to the fervor. Well, I guess what I wanted to ask you about it was. Um, it sounded like, especially from how you described your interaction with Jody and how you didn't want to record anything, it sounds like a real uh, different, a real 180 on his part to agree to show up on national radio on the biggest paranormal radio show in the, in the world um, from someone who didn't want you to even record the conversation. Well, for everybody that's, that's listening and wondered about this like you did on your column, um, it was not planned, at least I didn't think it was planned. Uh, not planned, not scripted, anything like that. What happened was that about, I heard on Thursday, the producer called me and said, you want to come on with Art on Sunday? I said, are you kidding? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, apart from his personal you know, belief system or whatever, um, I think he's it's very good at radio. I really respect that because I do radio. You do something, you know, it's internet radio. Um, I, I thought, it's like, great, I get to be on with Art Bell, the guy I've been listening to for years. You know, not recently, but, you know, at the beginning there, I listened to it incessantly. Yeah. So um, I, ca I called the producer back and I said, uh, or no, I, I wrote to Richard Doty. I wrote to a lot of people. I, I wrote to Doty and said, hey, I'm going to be on Art Bell on Sunday, and this is really good because it's like right after the ABC special. A lot of people will be listening. I don't know how I could have planned it better. Um. If there was something going on at some high level, I don't know about it. I really don't. Yeah. Um, and I said, hey, would you be interested in, um, like, calling in and making a few comments? I just thought, you know, that'd be, that'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, it might, might, might spice up the program a little bit. You know, nobody's heard from him in a while. It was a long shot. And he emailed me back and said, um, I guess I could, but um, it's really hard to get in touch with them. I mean, you know, have you ever tried to call in? It's impossible. I said, you know what, let me, um, and then I called, this was on Saturday. By Saturday we were talking on the phone, and I said, let me call the producer and ask him. So I left a message on um, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday they, they called me back, and uh, the weekend guy, some weekend producer, and said, yeah, sure, you know, why not? And then Sunday, about four hours before the show, um, Oh, and Dodie said, can I get, like, some private number? Can they call me so that I'm sure that I can actually talk? Yeah. Yeah, sure. And this was on Saturday. And then on Sunday, about four hours before the show, Art Bell calls me up and says, who's this Dodie fellow? <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, he's one of the people in the book. He's the, he's the intelligence agent that basically ran the operation um, that was uh, in place to uh, confuse and discredit Paul Benowitz. He said, well, okay, that sounds interesting. Uh, why don't you give me his number and we'll, uh, we'll contact him. And that's the last I heard of it until the show starts. And then he says, we might have some, you know, we, we may have a surprise guest on. I said, oh, he must have gotten in touch with Rick. <laughs> so I, I wait, and the first half hour I'm nervous as hell and confused and rambling because, not because I'm nervous about being on the radio, but I'm, I was nervous that I wanted to say the right thing to keep people interested enough to buy the book. So the first half hour is nervous as hell, and, and Bell came on in the, in the, during the break and said, Greg, keep it together here. There's people calling up and wondering what the hell is going on. I said, yes, I know. 
you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of nervous about it. I'll calm down. We'll get it together. So when he came back, the first thing I said was, do you want, do you want me to summarize the book for you? He said, please. <laughs> then about five minutes later, he said, now it's okay. We're going to have the, the guy on that was actually in the book, uh, Richard Doty. And he came on. What's your name? Richard Doty. And um, but it went on from there. After about 20 minutes, I hadn't said anything. Yeah, I was going to say that. You, he sort of, uh, he sort of became. That's that was the title of the column, actually, the Doty Show. Yeah, because it became the Doty Show. And if I, after a while, I thought, you know what? If I don't say anything, I'm going to be shoved off this show, and nobody's going to hear from me again. And uh, you know, I'm sure Art would have just let me sit there and not say anything. And the way radio works, if you, people don't know about it, is you have to break in and say something, or people aren't going to let you. It's like it's like a very rude conversation. Um, it's so tough. it's certainly tough, that's for sure. Yeah. So about 20 minutes into this, I, I I'm going to have to say something. So right before the break, he said, "Hey, yeah." Jody said, "Yes," and we did a few things to some other people too. And Bell started to say something. I said, "Wasn't one of those people Linda Howe?" <laughs> I remember that part. Bell goes, what? Linda Howe? Oh, my God. You mean you fooled Linda Howe? We're going to have to talk about this when we come back. It was a perfect cliffhanger. And then throughout the rest of the thing, basically what I did is I would jump in when I thought there was something that wasn't being said or that Doty could talk about that he didn't want to talk about, just to needle him a little bit. Yeah. And how do you think he responded to that, okay? Or He responded to it great, except when I tried to bring up Falcon. I think I remember two or three times I tried to bring it up, and he changed the subject pretty quick. Did he say anything to you afterwards, like, uh, that was great, nope. or... Oh, he said he enjoyed it, and he was glad he was on the show. But, you know, um, to, to uh, borrow a term from from, uh, from our glorious president, make no mistake, <laughs> a, a phrase, he, you, you know what he said on that show, he was cleared to say. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if that means he was cleared to say stuff that was true or to do whatever he wanted. I have no idea. But I, I have a feeling that a great deal of that was just a bunch of stuff that he wanted, you know, either he'd been saying before, like you said, or stuff like seeing the Roswell, the film of the Roswell wreckage. Um, he never told me that when we did the interview. He just said he saw films of UFOs. Now suddenly he was saying he saw films of the Roswell recovery. I, I was just as surprised as Bell was with the Linda Cow thing. I was thinking, what? I think I actually said on the show, I wish you'd told me this when we were talking about the book. Oh, he didn't really get into the Linda Howe stuff much? No, he did. In fact, he actually, he tried to make Linda Howe look good. He says, you know, he, she checked up on stuff and actually found out that a lot of it was. She didn't at first, but after a while she kind of caught on, I think, that he, her chain was getting pulled, especially after they, they pulled the promise of that film for uh, her documentary, which uh, screwed up her deal with HBO. Um, they kept promising her a film of the Holloman landing, just like they'd done with, uh, what's his name, with... Um, who was the researcher? Uh, Robert Emenegger, uh, 10, 20 years before. They, they, had, they had pulled that Holloman film trick at least twice, maybe more than that, um, of a UFO landing at Holloman Air Force Base and aliens getting out and talking to a colonel or something like that. A couple of people have said they've actually seen it, and that's actually what happened, and it looks pretty real. Um, uh, I think Linda saw it. Um, they said that she could use it, then they never released it to her, and it screwed up the deal, which is exactly what they wanted. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, he 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 was pretty pretty open and and complimentary about Linda. I think you know one because he felt kind of bad about having to fool her, and two he knew that she was a frequent guest on art show and didn't want to make her look bad. Yeah. 
And and that, you know, despite what she does now and what she's done recently, um, as far as he was concerned, at least in regards to his information, she had been fairly careful at that point. So, um, no, it wasn't scripted like some people said, and you said it sounded scripted and like there was a plan behind it. But from my point of view, there wasn't any plan behind it except to keep myself in the mix there so people would know that I was there, that I had written the book, and that they should go out and buy it. <laughs> you know? Exactly, yeah. Well, mostly what I was... And I was glad Doty was on there. I mean, it was far more interesting with him on than it would have been with just me. I, I, I know that. Well, it's certainly... That, that I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that he was on, and I'm, I actually... I, I appreciate I was, I was, I was grateful. Oh, yeah, that's, that, I lo- that seemed to be the hook that got a lot of people talking about it, because he emer- yeah. emerged from, from the shadows to uh, finally speak. Uh, yeah, well, maybe they were, maybe they were, um, the, whoever the powers that be wanted him on there to pump up my book because it has the kind of story they wanted it, which is, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not happy about that, but, or, who knows, I don't know. What are you not happy about? Uh, that, that the government, whoever was trying to cover something up would think my book was worth uh, pumping up on a national show so everybody would read it. Uh, you know what I mean? I just thought about that now. Well, the only thing I thought that was suspicious about it, and I think I pointed it out in the column, was that it came so soon after the ABC special. I thought that was just luck. Yeah, well, you know. I was really happy about it. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be on this weekend. Yes! Here's sort of a general ufology question. Uh, since you're on the West Coast, you probably will be able to answer this better than, than most people. It sounds like you have a good idea of the uh, sociological aspects of it. Why is there such a a concentration of ufology on the West Coast versus East Coast. I'm East Coast, so this maybe I don't even know this. I can't even think of any uh, conference on the East Coast other than the X Conference. That's only two years old, but there seems to be a ton on the West Coast. All the researchers seem to be on the West Coast. Um, what, what's that, what do you think is behind that ge- geographical split? Because everything that's loose rolls to the West Coast. <laughs> All, 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 all the nuts and flakes end up on the west coast. Um, I don't know. I think there's a general, you know, there's a there's a general. Um, there's always been a general trend of anybody with a weird idea or something that that seems kind of weird to everybody else to the establishment to just get away from it, and they keep moving west, and they all ended up here. You know, there's, there. I think there were far more utopian communities here. There's, there were far more religious, you know, strange religious groups here, and that's because of the, the general attitude of the state is, you know, well, whatever, you know, you're not going to get people out in the street yelling at you, or, you know, if you've got a weird idea, it's going to appear in a local or, or appear in a large paper here, whereas uh, the New York Times or the Boston what Globe or whatever it is, yeah. you know, you, ah, that guy's a nut. A lot of books from the East West Coast authors are not reviewed in the New York Times review of books. Oh, really? I, I think uh, if it has something to do with something weird going on in the West or some sort of strange religious idea or whatever, the, the publishing industries over there. Um, so I, I think it's just the general attitude of there's there's more of a kind of openness and a live and let live thing going on over here, where somebody can walk out the door and find five people that are, you know that that will listen to them um, fairly uncritically, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Um, on on out in the west, I mean, I grew up here, so my my perspective is kind of I don't have too much of a perspective of 
you know, one coast as opposed to the other. But that's my idea from my friends I know that live there. And, you know, there's a lot of weird people in Texas, a lot of groups and a lot of um, researchers in Texas as well, which is a result of Texas just being a wild and woolly place and basically being full of a bunch of, you know, um, uh, crazy independent-minded people. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not trying to put down the East Coast because of that, but I think that's I think that's what it is. It's just that myth of the West thing. It's, it's got to be entering into it somewhere. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, yeah, that seems to make the most sense. Yeah, it just it sort of strikes me that that there really is a dearth of of, uh, of researchers, except for you know the um, some of the Harvard type guy like uh, John Mack. Mm-hmm. You know, there's maybe maybe more of the uh, academic. Type. Yeah, the the, the establishment there is different from the establishment here. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's that you know what's that cowboy cowboy Yankee dichotomy that's been talked about for many years. Yeah. So I, I it's just it it's it <laughs> however buried it is in the in the national culture we have I, I think it's still kind of alive. When I was reading the book, all I kept thinking about well obviously not all of it, but uh a lot of times it flashed into my head that movie, um, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Oh yeah, I like that movie. And I kept thinking to myself, this book would be an awesome movie. Is there Yeah, too bad nobody else has written me from a studio saying that yet. <laughs> well that was the question. Are there is there well, is there any chance of a movie uh coming out of this book? Do you think uh I heard there was noise about it from the publisher, but that's been a couple of months, and I haven't heard anything about it since then. Um, I think Paul David said he would be interested in, you, in, in uh, developing a story out of it, uh, de- developing some kind of movie out of it. I wish that it would happen. I mean, I, I, and the only reason is because I, I, it means that I can concentrate more on writing from the money from the movie and, and less on having to earn a living in other ways. Yeah. Writing and research. Um, and uh, I don't really care what they do with the movie. And I know it's going to be something that will probably horrify me and everybody <laughs> associated with the story. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. So, you know, which is, might as well take the money and run and go do something useful with it. You, if, yeah. Produce another yeah, that that, that, that uh, breaks something open or, or, most importantly, helps me learn something and then um, in the course of that learning, uh, write it down and have other people read it and see if they can do something with it, which is exactly what I hope for with the, with the Benowitz book. All right. And uh, the last question is, uh, what are you working on now? What's your next big project? You know, what are you looking into? Um, right now I'm working on a book that was due about a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's for, uh, do you know about those weird New Jersey people that do that show now on History Channel called Weird U.S.? No. You know, well, there's a show called Weird U.S., and they basically dra- they traveled around the country looking at, uh, uh, you know, strange architecture, haunted places, uh, carny shows, uh, just just weird things in in your area. And they're doing a they're doing a series of books for every state. Oh, and really? I got Southern California. So that's what I'm writing about. You know, I've, I've written about racetrack playa where the rocks slide around on that dry lake bed. Nobody knows how they do it. Um, haunted houses, uh, abandoned metal hospitals. I've been to gravity hills where your car rolls rolls uphill. You know, stuff like that. Wow. So you just get to go to all these places and check them out and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, what what better 
what better thing I could have, I, I couldn't have thought of a better thing to, for my life to turn out at this point than to have somebody pay me to go to places that I want to go to anyway. Exactly, yeah. That would write be about it. The unfortunate thing is I have to write about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, man. Right, I just finished writing about the Black Dahlia murder um, uh, that happened in 1947, and I'm just about to start my article on my piece for the book on the Battle of Los Angeles when unidentified objects flew over in Los Angeles in February of 1942 and were shot at by, uh, by uh, anti-aircraft fire. Now, was your family around in L.A. back then? No, no. My, my, my dad came out from... Uh, he went into the Air Force. He was born in Oklahoma, and they they moved out here in the... Uh, my mom and dad moved out here in the 60s. Oh, okay. That was, that was long after it, but... Um, yeah, I've, I've just... I've just gotten a bunch of old newspaper uh, accounts from the LA Times and Los Angeles Herald Examiner. The Herald Examiner is great because it was a Hearst paper, so there's huge lurid headlines. <laughs> now the entire front page is covered with stories about it, and there's even stories about Japanese people being rounded up and sent to camps. It was just starting then. Oh, really? Yeah, it was like, you know, and it's funny, it's a Hearst paper, and in the paper they say, public outcry growing to, to uh, oust Japs. Like, where'd you get the public outcry from? Is this the public outcry you're trying to create with the Hearst paper? <laughs> I have a feeling that it's more like that. Yeah. But, yeah, it's just fascinating. Just all this fascinating stuff, some I knew about, uh, a lot of which I didn't. Um, and that, that, that should be out, I think, in January. Then after that, I have no idea. I've got to start sending out proposals again, although I'm, you know, my, my side project right now is to try to find out who the Falcon was. <laughs> Nice. That sounds like an exciting uh, side project, too. Yeah, it's exciting once every four or five or six months when something actually uh, clicks and I find something new. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think you're going to do uh, another book in the ufology realm, um, or are you going to try and uh, go in a different direction? Um, that's certainly going to be, you know, there's certainly there's no shortage of stuff to write about in ufology. and. That's what I'd like to send out, but I don't, you know, I, I would like to, Simon & Schuster is great. You know, they did the publicity, and they had, you know, great editors, and they did everything very carefully and did exactly what I wanted. And um, people are always saying, you know, what did, did the publisher tell you you shouldn't say this, and they try to cut stuff out? Like, no, they didn't cut anything out. Nice. They just, they left everything as is. All, the editor, Patrick Quaze, who did a great job, he just rearranged kind of things chronologically so they made a little bit better sense. Yeah. And he did a good job of it. You know, I realized after he did it how much better sense it made, if it does make any sense now, than it did when I first turned it in. So, I, you know, I'd like to write more books having to do with UFO subjects. I've always been interested in it. And people are always, you know, people say, you know, are you a skeptic and non-believer? Why did you write this book? It's like, I wrote it because I'm interested in ufology, not because I want to put it down. Yeah, you know, you get it's a story that I had never heard. I'd only heard... Uh, you know, mentioned in passing, and um, and Bill Moore's kind of been written out of the history books of ufology until now, until this book really came along. So that was really valuable to me. Because you know, it's funny. He told me after he read the book. I, I you know, I I showed it to him, um, of course, two or three times while I was working on it, to so he could check it over and see if there was anything I'd left out, or I'd take him out of context. After it was all over, he he said, you know, there's stuff in there I don't really agree with, but. I can't argue with you about it because you know those are the, you know that's who I am. That's what I said. 
and also the stuff that you found out. You found out stuff I didn't even know. A lot of stuff. Yeah. And uh, and I, I think in, in retrospect, it's the book that he probably would have wanted to have written in his way, but he was happy to let somebody else do it. <laughs> um, and like I said, like he, he didn't agree with everything in it, and that actually made me feel a lot better about it too. I mean, I'm I'm not somebody. Uh, not, people or some people actually also accuse me of being a mouthpiece for Bill. And uh, I like I I just said I hasten to add he didn't agree with everything in the book. Yeah. He didn't agree with how I said it or what my ideas were behind them, but he said that, you know, those are your ideas, you researched them, and you and, and you supported yourself, so I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> um, all right, well, let, let's uh, we'll just wrap it up here. Thank you so much, dude. You, don't even, you can't even imagine how much this means to me. You really gave me a ton of time and just a ton of material, and I can't recommend your book enough because this is – I was fascinated by it. I read it lickety-split as soon as I got it. Uh, I was just engrossed in it, and uh, if you follow the ufology field, the people that are listening, if, I'm, obviously they follow the ufology field, they're, they're, they're coming to the website and listening to the audio, you've got to read this book, because it'll really, it shows the whole field in a whole different light, um, and it kind of pulls the curtain back on the researchers and the, the cloak and dagger aspect of a lot of what goes on in the field, and I, it seriously gets my highest recommendation. So thank you for writing an awesome book, and I hope more people will check it out and uh, pick up the book after listening to this interview. And well, I hope so, too. And you know what, Tim? I got to say all kinds of stuff that I never get asked, and people don't give me the time or allow me to say, so I really appreciate it, too. All right, well, thanks a lot. Thank you, Tim. And there you have it, part two of two, the Greg Bishop interview. Big thanks to Greg Bishop for sitting down and giving me so much time. It was really uh, quite an experience, and... A really enjoyable interview to conduct. I hope you all check out his book, Project Beta. And you can also check out Greg Bishop's website at www.excludedmiddle.com. That's E-X-C-L-U-D-E-D-M-I-D-D-L-E.com. And, as always, you can find more Banal Madness at banalofamerica.com. That's www.binallofamerica.com. Thanks to Leslie and Chiron of banallofamerica.com for your continued help and support in the audio series every week. You guys are, are right there behind me helping me out and getting these interviews out and published and, and put out for the mass audience. So I appreciate that tremendously. And thank you, everybody, who's been downloading and listening to banallofamerica.com's Banall of America Audio Season 1. Thanks for downloading the episodes. Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for the emails. I really appreciate it. Next week, guest number six is actually to be announced because I have three potential guests that we might be rolling out. I'd say I'm about 80% sure who it will be, but I'm not going to say just yet, so you'll have to check back to banallofamerica.com to find out about that. You'll be hearing from me next week. And until then, take it easy, folks. Have a great weekend and a great week. Bye-bye.